Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Micah, chapter number 2. Micah, chapter number 2. If uh, you're not maybe familiar with that portion of your Bible, if you find the book of Jonah and take a right-hand turn, you'll find the book of Micah. Or you can find the book of Nahum and take a left-hand turn and you'll get there just the same. It's sandwiched between that story of the ancient power that we know as Assyria. Jonah, of course, preached in Nineveh. And uh, Assyria repented, and then you read the book of Micah, and then you get past that, and you find out Nineveh turned back on their repentance, and God had to destroy them. But you can find the book of Micah, it's a good way to remember it, between Jonah, between the, the repentance of Nineveh and the destruction of Nineveh, you'll find the little book of Jonah. Micah chapter number 2, I'd like to read the entirety of this chapter. It's only 13 verses, will not take us long. And then I'd like to read a portion of Scripture to you out of the book of Hebrews. And then we'll come back to the book of Micah. You'll see why we'll do that here in just a moment. Micah chapter number 2. The Word of God says this, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you, and lament with a doleful lamentation, and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me, turning away... He hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them, that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord straitened? Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you even with a sore destruction." If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall be even the prophet of this people. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Uh, What a sweet spirit we felt already in the house of God. What a blessing from the music, the singing, the congregational singing uh, that we have enjoyed. Oh, how I miss that congregational singing when we couldn't gather together. What a blessing it is to my soul to gather together with your people and sing. Thank you for the choir singing, Lord. Thank you for the good uh, special that we heard. And Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of your people gathered in this building and on these premises that have come to worship you. Now, I pray, Lord, surely with all that preparation, Uh, Lord, with all that dedication, Father, surely with our hearts surrendered and submitted unto You, uh, You can meet with us this morning. And Lord, we are glad for Your presence. We thank You for Your presence. And we ask that Your presence would continue with us manifestly, Lord, powerfully 
that you might speak to hearts. You know each and every person here. You know the numbers of hairs on their head. You know their tears. You know their heartaches. You know their worries, their anxieties, their fears. But Lord, most of all, You know their greatest needs. Lord, I pray that You would meet those needs. And maybe they themselves are not even aware of those needs. I pray You'd make them aware of them as You meet them in their life. That You'd show them that their only hope is through Christ. That their only help cometh from the hills from whence You sit. Lord, that they would lean upon You and seek to You that You might receive glory glory from what's accomplished. Lord, we love you and we ask all this in the name of the precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In Micah chapter number 2, I want you to notice a verse with me this morning. And while I read this to you, be finding Hebrews chapter number 4. Listen to what verse number 10 says of Micah chapter 2. God, in speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel in their disobedience and rebellion, He catalogs the kind of life that they're living. And then He he invokes their departure. He commands them to rise and to leave the way they're living. Listen to how He says it in verse 10. He says, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted, it shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. I was arrested by that phrase, this is not your rest, because it reminded me of something that the Hebrews writer talks about in Hebrews chapter 4. I wish I had about six hours to preach. Amen. I was thinking about it whenever uh, Jim talked about Miss Connie and the and the uh, children practicing after church, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to preach extra long this morning and give those kids plenty of time to practice. Somebody say amen. Yeah, I didn't think you would. And... uh but in, I wish I had time to really go through and, and talk about what uh, the Hebrews writer deals with. Because in chapter number 3 of the book of Hebrews, he talks about the fact that God had a desire for the nation of Israel to enter into a place of rest. Now, for them, that place of rest was the land of Canaan. God had a resting place, a place not to suggest that they would be idle, but rather that they would be stationary, that they would be established, that they would be in a place where they would not be assaulted by their enemies, in a place where they would not have to travel and live from tent peg to tent peg. And He had a desire that they enter into this place of rest. Well, in chapter number 4, the Hebrews writer reminds us that when the children of Israel left Egypt, uh, there were some that made it into that rest. There were some that made it to the land of Canaan, but sadly there was a whole generation of people that because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, because of their cynicism of the promises of God, there was a whole generation that died in the wilderness and they, listen now, they left Egypt, but they never entered into rest. I said they left Egypt, they left the place of darkness, of unbelief, they left the place of their lost condition, of the world's grip, of Satan's grasp. They were delivered from that place by the blood of the Lamb through the Red Sea. They were brought and led out. You get what I'm saying this morning? I'm saying if we were to talk about New Testament people like this, we'd say they saved people. They left that place of darkness by the blood of the Lamb, but sadly they died in the wilderness. They never entered into the land of rest that God promised them. Listen to what the Hebrews writer expands upon in verse number 1 of chapter 4. He says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, the people he's writing to are a long way from the Red Sea. 
The people that he's writing to, in fact, are already living in the land of Canaan. So obviously, he's saying there is a sense in which we enter into a rest with God that is beyond just merely physically for the Jews being in the land of Canaan. And then he applies it to us as New Testament believers. We're not promised the land of Canaan in the way that the Jewish nation is. But he says we too have a rest to enter into. He says in verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, meaning the people in the wilderness. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. You notice what he said there. A life of faith is a life of rest. We which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, and he's quoting the Lord in the Old Testament, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. There's a lot we could say about that, but God's saying essentially, I made a way for them to enjoy Canaan, But there was a generation of people that never entered into Canaan. They died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. He, excuse me, goes a step further. Verse 4, he says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, in the book of Psalms, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now listen carefully, verse 8. For if Jesus... Now I'm going to tell you one time in your Bible that Jesus don't mean Jesus. Alright? Here in Hebrews 4, 8, Jesus don't mean Jesus. It means Joshua. Now you say, well, my Bible says Jesus. Well, that's true. You know why? Because the Greek name for Joshua is Jesus. But here it's not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about Joshua in the Old Testament. For if Jesus had given them rest then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now let me pause there and say this. This is what the Hebrews writer is saying. He's saying God promised them rest when they were in Egypt. And God said he wanted to bring them into a land of rest. And he did bring them into that land of rest. But he says way later on in the book of Psalms, David's still saying that they need to enter into God's rest. So evidently, the rest that God was talking about was something more than just living in the land of Canaan. You see what the Hebrews writer is doing. He's expanding our perspective. He's saying evidently when God says they need to enter into rest, he's not talking about a geographical rest. He's talking about a spiritual rest. But he says the same truths apply. They couldn't enter into that geographical rest because they had no faith. And you know, we as God's people, we don't enter into that spiritual rest because we're not trusting the Lord the way that we should. It says in verse 10, he breaks it down. He says, for he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So the Hebrews writer says, walk with me to the Old Testament and look what happened to Israel. God promised them rest, but they didn't want to believe God. They didn't want to believe His promises. They didn't want to trust Him. And so they died in the wilderness. A people delivered by the blood of the Lamb, bought by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by the uh, by the blood of the Lamb. They died in the wilderness. Listen now, they never became what God intended them to be. They never entered into the land God planned for them to enter into. You getting where I'm going now? There's a whole generation of people, he says, bought by the blood of the land, but died in the wilderness, never became what God desired for them to be in this life. Uh, They never, Brother Ken, entered into his rest because of unbelief. Then he goes further and he says, now, God's still talking about his rest. 
All the way in the book of Psalms, he's still saying there's people need to enter into his rest. What does it mean to enter into his rest? It means to cease from your own works. That's why he brings up the Lord in uh, the book of Genesis. God didn't rest because he's tired. God rested because he's done. And he's saying that you and I as believers, we're going to get back to the book of Micah. Don't get nervous. I know you're missing it, but we'll get back there. The reason that he brings this up is to say that, you know, you and I, sometimes we don't enter into that land where God wants us to dwell in, spiritually speaking. We might be saved. We might be bought by the blood of the Lamb. We might be redeemed. We might have been brought out of Egypt's darkness. We might have passed through dry-footed over the Red Sea. But we're still not living the way God wants us to live. We've not entered into His rest. Now go back with me to the book of Micah. Let's think about what Micah says about this rest. Verse 10, once again, he says this, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. Can I preach to you on this thought this morning? This is not your rest. Now, you might say, well, preacher, I'm still a little cloudy. Well, let me change a letter there that might explain it. When I say this is not your rest, you know what we could also say? This is not your best. What God is saying is, I have so much more for you than you are experiencing. Can I tell you something? Hey, listen, we can follow the typology through the Old Testament. The land of Canaan never represented heaven. The land of Canaan had giants in it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to heaven and find giants. I've got to fight there. That ain't much heaven to me. But what Canaan represented was the life that God had for them, the life of victory, the life of faith, the life of fruitfulness that God desired for them. And there was a whole generation never made it because they wouldn't trust Him. And I'm saying this morning, I believe there's a lot of God's people saved by the blood of the Lamb, bought by the blood of Christ, as saved as ever they'll be, and as saved as you and I, and as saved as the Apostle Paul, but they're not living the life that God intends for them to live. Sadly, we're still wandering in the wilderness. And I think it is in this spirit that Micah gives this exhortation. God looks at the disobedient kingdom of Israel, and He says, you know, this is not what I saved you for. This is not what I delivered you for. This is not what I designed for your life. I want you to notice three things with me this morning that may give us an idea of a little bit of what was going on in their day and what may be going on in our day. Let's begin at verse number 1. We'll just walk through this chapter. How's that sound? Verse number 1, God begins by saying this, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. We'll go on a little further to look at some other descriptions, but stop and think about the theme of the message that we are examining this morning. God looks down at His people, a people that He gave His only Son for, a people that He created the world that He might be able to have fellowship with, a people that He has devised a plan of redemption and salvation that includes Him Himself going and dying in their place, a people that He has loved and called the apple of His eye, a people that He has loved and called His precious treasure. He looks at these people and he sees that their life is a mess. He looks at them and every night when they go to bed, they lay there and think about how they can do wrong the next day. Can I say, I think first what we find here in this verse and a few to follow is the description of a wasted life. He says, I look at you people and say to myself, this is not what I saved you for. What kind of life was it that he saw? Let me say number one in the verse that we just read, it was a life of sinfulness. 
Their thought life was permeated and polluted by thoughts of iniquity. They literally lay in bed at night and try to devise things that they could do wrong the next day. They allowed sin to be their master. They allowed sin to rule in the realm of their heart and of their mind. And he looks at them and says, you know, I didn't bring you out of Egyptian darkness to just see you live a life of sin in the land of Canaan. Can I say to you this morning, God didn't just save us to give us a seat in heaven. I'm glad when God saved us, we got a place in heaven. He said, I go to prepare a place. I will come again, receive you unto myself. I'm glad that heaven is my home. I'm glad that I'm on an upward track. But let me say this morning, God saved us not just to change our eternity, but to change our life presently too. For us to live a life of sin, you understand sin is what Christ died for, right? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a smart aleck. Please don't take it that way. But sometimes we need to be uh, we need to be jarred into acknowledgement of the fact that listen, when we live our life in sin, when we allow sin into our life, the little pet sins, the little hidden sins, uh, the little uh, golden calves in our life, the things uh, that we would crucify in somebody else, but the things that we mollify in ourselves, uh, the things that we would execute someone else for, but we excuse ourselves for those things. God didn't save you and I to live a life of sin. And so often, by the way, notice this isn't my message, but it's about to be. Notice where it is that sin begins. He says you lay in bed at night and think about it. Can I tell you something? And I understand the nuance in the Old Testament of sins of omission. I understand the nuance in the Old Testament of trespass sins. But let me say that every sin that you and I commit, we it starts first in here and it starts first in here before it ever reaches these hands or these feet. He looks down at a, a people that are living a life of sinfulness. He says, I did not save you for this life. Look at verse number 2 with me. He says this about his own people, apple of his eye. He says they covet fields. Now, God's, God has condemned us of coveting. He has, he has prohibited coveting. What does it mean to covet something? To covet something don't just mean to desire something. Everybody desires things. But to covet, it means two things. One, to want it at the expense of someone else. And two, to want it above wanting Christ. There ought not be anything in our life that we want to spite someone else. Amen? Uh, there, now, there are th- and that's the reason the Bible talks about not coveting your neighbor's livestock, not coveting your neighbor's family, not coveting your neighbor's wife. Hey, listen, she can't be my wife and your wife at the same time. Uh, the fact is, she's got to be the wife of one man. That's why if you desire her, you're coveting her. God is drawing a line and saying it belongs if it belongs to someone else and you desire it at the expense of that other person. You want to take something from someone else. That's to covet something. And then I think it's to desire something above the Lord Jesus Christ, to give it a preeminent place in our lives. He looked down at His people and He said, what do they covet? They covet fields. And we can see this by the way they respond. It says they covet fields. And what do they do? They take them by violence. Why do they take them by violence? Because they don't belong to them. That's the only way they can take them. And houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. I think he looked down. He didn't just see a life of sinfulness. Listen, he saw a life of selfishness. He saw a group of people that loved and longed for only their own temporal monetary advancement. He looked at a group of people that would do anything it took to claw above anyone else. He looked at a group of people that saw themselves as greatest in need. Can I tell you something? God didn't give us the greatest example in selflessness only for us to turn around and live selfish lives. Sadly, a lot of God's people are selfish. Are you with me this morning? I'll just keep preaching till you're with me. Amen. You know that's how this works. I'm saying a lot of us have our only interest in what is in what advances me, what helps me, what puts things in my pocket, what gives me greater power, what gives me greater influence. And God looks down and says, how can you live a life like that when I've given all for you? How can we take the life that was purchased to us 
by the most selfless sacrificial act in all of history, the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. It was a sacrifice for God because He gave His only begotten Son. It was a sacrifice for Christ because He laid down His life. It was a sacrifice for the Spirit of God because Christ gave up the ghost and He commended His Spirit. The thrice holy triune God gave up Himself for you and I. God, help us to take that life, that precious life that God has purchased us with and to dishonor it, to besmirch it by turning around and living it a life of selfishness. If we should learn anything from the cross of Calvary, it ought to be that it ain't about us. If we've learned anything from the death of the Lord Jesus, it ought to be that it ain't about us. Listen, I know they, they teach it in public schools. They pump it in people's minds through Hollywood and through popular culture. But at the end of the day, you and I, the world don't revolve around us. It revolves around Jesus Christ. He's the Son of Righteousness. He's the one that it's all about. And at the end of the day, listen, it ain't about me. It ain't about you. It's about Him. And then it's about everybody else before it's about you. You put Him first. You put everybody else where they need to be. That's in front of you. And God will make sure you and I are taken care of. But he looked down at his people and he said, that's not how they're living. Look at verse number 8 with me. Let's jump down a little bit. Look at verse number 8. God says this, even of late. Now that's interesting. Even of late. You say, why is that interesting? Because the war drums were already beating of the Assyrian army pressing down on them. In other words, God was already dealing with them. God had already dealt with them. But even of late, he says, even with me dealing with them, even with me chastening them, even with the impending doom, even of late, he says, my people is risen up as an enemy. Now here's a question we always got to ask when we come across that word enemy. An enemy of who? I can be an enemy of somebody and not be an enemy of you. You can be an enemy of me and not be an enemy of somebody else. An enemy of who? Well, I think it's twofold and we have it described in the next phrase. He says, you pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. We'll do a little explaining of that in a second. But he's saying they've become an enemy of God's people. And by extension, they've become an enemy of God Himself. Now, how could a man get to that place? How could a man... I mean, these are Israelites, you understand. These are not pagan lost Gentiles, have no clue who the real God is. These are not people dwelling in pagan idolatry and darkness. How could they get... How could you get to the place? You're the apple of God's eye. You're the child of God. You're the people of God. How could you ever become the enemy of God? The book of James tells us. The book of James tells us this, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore... James says, whosoever therefore, if friendship with the world is enmity with God, if being friends with the world puts you on the wrong side of the battle line from God, what does that mean? It means whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world. Now, what does that mean to be a friend of the world, of the world system, of the world culture, to embrace and adopt the way that the world lives above what the truth of the Word of God teaches, to side with the world, to say, I don't care what God says about it, I care what the world says about it, I don't care what God says about it, I'm more interested in what society says about it, Uh, everybody's doing this thing, everybody's living this way, and that's what matters to me, I want to fit in, I want to be popular, I want to be accepted, to be friends with the world. Friendship of the world, he said, is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world will be an enemy of God. There's no choice. God didn't say, I'll be an enemy of you. He says, if you be a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy to me. You have sided against God and His Word. Now, what's He saying here? 
He's saying you've become my enemy by being the enemy of my people. And here's how he describes it. He says this, Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by, securely as men, adverse from war. Now, in ancient Israel, men, whenever they would dress, they'd have an outer garment. Very often that garment would be used as a blanket when they would sleep and so on. And then they would have their robe. They would have the actual clothing that they wore that would be worn right against the skin of their body. And that's the reason the Bible talks about if a person, uh, it, it, you know, borrows your cloak, uh, that you ought to give them your robe also. In other words, it was common procedure in that day to take as surety or as down payment or as earnest money a person's garment because you knew, hey, listen, how how many of y'all uh, could sleep without a blanket over you at night? I know I couldn't. Amen. I'd just stare up at the ceiling. Uh, they'd freeze to death. And so very often when they would have business transactions, they'd borrow money or if they'd make promises, they would give as a pledge their outer garment. And that's why God said they weren't allowed to keep that outer garment overnight. They had to be kept safe. Here's what it's saying. It's saying you reach out to men that are walking by, he says, as averse from war. In other words, people that believe they're at peace. People that believe that nothing's wrong. People that, brother Kim, they, they aren't geared up for war. They're not guarding themselves. They're not protecting themselves. He said, you reach out and pull off not just the garment, but the robe also. You strip them of all they have. People that trusted you, that saw you as a neighbor. Can I say it this way? He looked down and he saw a life, not just of sinfulness and selfishness. He looked down and saw a life of subtleness. People that were willing to scheme and game to get ahead. People that were willing to take advantage of others. I think this terminology is more vivid in the book of Ephesians than anywhere else when it describes how Christ feels about His people, about the church in this New Testament day of grace. It says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Can I tell you something? When we take advantage of God's people, we're taking advantage of God Himself. When we set ourselves at odds with God's people, we're setting ourselves at odds with God's Himself. We're making ourselves an enemy of God. He said, you're trying to get ahead through scheming, through subtlety. Uh, you're trying to get ahead through taking advantage of people. He said, how could you believe? That's how I'd want you to live. I love these people. I died for these people. Hey, can I remind you something? Listen, we've all been church hurt before. You may have people around said ugly things about you, lied about you, looked at you funny. I don't know what they may have done against you, but can I tell you this? At the end of the day, every single one of us, Christ died for us. He loves us. He paid a price for us. And listen, every single one, and that's true not just to church folks, that's true of everybody. He died for everybody. And then those are the household of faith, those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, we're part of the same body. We're part of the same body. If a person, if you walked by and saw somebody taking their fist and pounding their self in the head, uh, you'd call them deranged. If you walked by and saw somebody that was taking uh, sharp objects, and sadly we've seen this pervasive in a lot of youth culture and cutting their body or saw someone uh, damaging a, a limb or an appendage, you'd say that's deranged. Wonder what God feels about when He sees God's people attacking each other. A life of subtleness, subtleness. And then look at verse nine with me. He says, "Then this: the women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses, and from their children have ye taken away my glory forever." I'm going to say it this way: a life of savageness. What he was saying is, you have no compassion. Those that were most vulnerable in society, those that needed folks to look after them, to watch over them, to keep them safe. You instead were savage, were cruel, were uncompassionate towards them. Let me say that God's people ought to be a compassionate people. It does not mean that we ought to be pie in the sky. It does not mean we ought to be blind to the realities of this world or to the consequences of people's actions. But I'm saying the default for God's people ought to be pity, ought to be mercy, ought to be compassion. 
There are times even when God Himself, uh, the bounds of His mercy were sounded. There were times when even God Himself, the long sufferingness of His nature, uh, was trespassed against. But I'm saying, you know, and I'm glad God's this way. We talked about it. We sang about it. Uh, Miss Melissa sang, with, with eyes full of mercy and a heart full of love. I'm sure glad the first thing God is apt to do is not strike me down. Because I sure wouldn't even make it ten minutes. So why as God's people would our first instinct be to strike people down? I'm saying he looked at this description of a wasted life. He said it's, and this is the word he used, polluted. I wonder how many of us are living a polluted life. Polluted by sinfulness. Polluted by selfishness. Polluted by subtleness. Polluted by savages. I wonder how many of us are living lives less than what God called us and desires for us to live. So we see the description of a wasted life. But then look down at verse number 3. Here's what God said He's going to do as a result. I'm going to call this the destruction of a wasted life. God looks and says, this will be the result. He summarizes it in verse 10. He says, it is polluted because it is polluted. It shall destroy you with a sore destruction. Listen, we can't live a life of sin and not pay a price for it. We can't live in disobedience to God and not pay a price for it. The uh, statutes of God, the law of God, the truth of God, the commandments of God, they're not given at the whim of a petty tyrant. They're given out of a loving heart that desires the best for His people. He's a loving King that desires the best for His subjects. God doesn't prohibit things in our life because He lacks the power. God is fully secure in His power. He doesn't need to reaffirm it by telling you or I silly things to do. God knows that He's God. He's not trying to figure it out yet. So when He tells us to do something, it's not because He just wants to flex his muscle. It's not because he just wants to prove he's God. He knows he's God. He says these things because he loves us. So he says this polluted life, it's going to destroy you. It won't just destroy you. It'll be a bad destruction. He calls it a sore destruction. Well, what would it do? Look at verse 3 with me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold against this family. Now, what family? Well, the family he just described. The people that live this way and act this way. Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. Neither shall ye go haughtily, because sin always catches up with you. For this time, he said, is evil. He said it's going to be a hard time. It's going to be a perilous time. It's going to be a painful time. And this is what he said is going to happen in that day. In that day, when the chickens come home to roost, amen, when the cows are called in, when, when, when the payment comes, when the chastening falls, in that day shall one take up a parable against you. Now, we think of that word parable uh, in terms of the Lord Jesus uh, giving uh, parables in the New Testament, telling spiritual truths through illustration, but it can also mean a- an example a catechism, a, a, a byword is another play, uh, word that the Bible uses, a proverb. In other words, it would be an illustration. They shall take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, we be utterly spoiled. Can I give you an example that might help you a little bit? I grew up in a Bible-believing church. I grew up in youth groups. I, I grew up, you know, around preaching my whole life. And I can't tell you the numbers of times I heard preachers, youth pastors, and, and conference speakers, and, and chapel speakers get up, and they'd preach. And they'd almost always, you know what they'd put in? They'd put in what we call an illustration. They'd tell an example of a young person who didn't heed the warnings of God's Word. And inevitably, those stories always ended the same, not because they was making them up, but because it's true. 
Because what God's Word says is true. They talk about people who had the same opportunities that I as a young person was being afforded, but sadly they spurned the grace of God and they spurned the love of God and they spurned the truth of God and made shipwreck of their lives. You know now, here I am, 30-something years old, and I can stand up and even in my short sojourn, I've got people whose lives I can do the same thing with. I could tell you about young people that were in my youth group. I could tell you about young people that I went to school with. I could tell you about people that I met as an adult that had every opportunity that I had that were afforded every good grace that God could give them, but instead they turned away from it. Now today their life is in pieces. Today their marriages have fallen apart. Today their life is in wreckage. They've become a byword, a parable, an illustration as to what happens when a person walks in disobedience to God. God said this, I'm going to say it this way, the ravaging of their testimony. He said, you know what's going to happen if you live this way? Instead of people looking at you and saying, now that's what God wants for His people. They'll look at you and say, what a sad life that they have led. You can probably think of people, and I know I can, that I'd say that about this morning. People who the greatest value in their testimony is as a cautionary tale. We talk about them and say, boy, what a mess they made of their lives. Now, can I tell you something this morning? We have this syndrome, this other syndrome. That's somebody, the somebody else syndrome, right? We hear it being said and we say, well, that's somebody else. That's them other folks. Ever dawn on you that at one time they're sitting on this side of tragedy saying that about those other people? Can I tell you something? You and I ain't special. I know we've been taught it our whole lives, uh, but at the end of the day, we're special in as much as God loves us. Uh, but we're not exempt from these same spiritual truths and laws. Uh, the law of sowing and reaping, the law of cause and effect applies to you like it applies to me. Hey, it applied uh, to our marriage like it applies to that broken marriage we're looking at. It applies to our children like it applied to their wayward children. Uh, let us not think we'll escape the consequences. It could be us one day. It could be, uh, there might be folks in this room, it was you. And by God's mercy and grace, today it's not you. And you can testify to the fact that at one time you thought it'd never be you. Then it was you. And thank God now it ain't you. But you can look at people who say, it'll never be me. And say, oh yes, it could. Yes, it could. I had the same, I had the same spirit. I had the same thing. And then one day it was me. And I didn't know how it happened. We see the ravaging of their testimony. And then look at the rest of verse number 4. Here's what they're going to say. We be utterly spoiled, nothing left. And here's how he describe it. He, talking about God, hath changed the portion of my people. Now, what does that mean? Well, when the children of Israel went into the land, God gave a portion to every single tribe. He hath changed the portion of my people. And by the way, they were commanded by God to retain those portions, to retain those boundary lines. That's what the Jubilee year was all about, is they could buy and sell property for 49 years back and forth, but at the 50th year, all the land went back to the tribe that it originally belonged to because God had given it to them, and that land didn't belong to Israel. It belonged to God, and God said, this is who I want to have it. But now He says they've changed the portion of my people. He says this, turning away, he hath divided our fields. Isn't that interesting language, turning away? In other words, it's not that God reached down and did it. It's just that when God turned away, the floods of Gentile world powers came in. And by the way, that's what happened to Israel. The Assyrians came in under Tiglath-Pileser and destroyed them as a kingdom, as a nation. To this day, they've never come back the way they were before. Whenever God turned away, has it ever dawned on you that all it'd take for your life or mine to fall into utter destruction is just for God to turn away? <laughs> I think about how teenagers are. I think about it all the time because I was one at one time. I think about it all the time because I'm going to have a few here in a few years. 
I think about what it was like as a teenager. Maybe you said this. I hope you never did. I don't know if I did or not. My parents ain't here to uh, to prove me wrong this morning. That's what they get for laying out. But sometimes they, they didn't lay out. They're up at, at some kind of family thing. I don't know. I don't like my family, so I didn't go. I like this family. Amen. So I, I stayed here. But uh, maybe you as a teenager uttered these words. Well, I just wish you'd go away to your parents. Did you ever say that or think that? Maybe you thought, well, I just wish I was never even born into this family. I wish, I wish you weren't even my parent. And you know a parent must sit and listen to that and think to themselves, if I walked out of this house, you'd starve in 20 minutes. You can't even microwave macaroni. You'd die in 20 minutes. You know God must feel like that. We get angry at God. We get upset at God. Why has God got to tell me what to do? Why is His Word so restricted? Why does He tell me this? Why does He tell me that? But you know, the reality is all it takes is God just turning away. Just turning away for a brief moment. And all that we thought we were secure in, Brother Tim, it all be gone in a heartbeat. Turning away, Micah says, He hath divided our fields. And then listen to how He closes this. I'm not closing, but He's closed. Listen. He says, therefore, thou shalt have none that cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. That's how they measured out their boundaries was with cords. In other words, he's saying, because of the way we lived, the land, the ground we had gained was taken away from us. I wrote it down like this. We see the rescinding of their territory. Now, remember, this land, it's representative of that rest. This land, it's representative of that life of victory. This land, it's representative of spiritual advancement. Can I tell you this? It's possible if we let sin in our lives that we won't be the Christian in a year that we are today. It's possible to lose ground. I know it's possible. I could give you names of people, and you could give names right back, of people that at one time they was teaching Sunday school classes, they was passing out tracts, maybe they was driving a bus, they was doing great things for God. They, in their own way, were trying to advance and live for the Lord and, and see God use them mightily, and today are nowhere to be found. You know, it's possible to lose the ground that we've gained, and that's exactly what happened to them. And then I see a third thing here. I must hasten. We see in verse number 6 what happens. This was what they were saying to the prophets. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They had preachers in their day. And they said, we don't want to hear no preaching. We don't want to hear what you have to say about it. We don't want to hear you prophesy. You know what God says? He says, they shall not prophesy to them. They shall not take shame. Now, there's some debate as to what that phrase, take shame, means. If he's talking about the people taking shame by hearing uh, the shamefulness of their sins, it's possible he's talking about the prophets not taking shame that was poured upon them by those that were looking with scorn and the cynicism at what they said. But here's what it all summarizes as. God said, you don't want to hear it, you won't hear it. You don't want to hear it, you won't hear it. I'm going to call this the removal of truth. The removal of truth. You know, we live in sin long enough, God is bound to say, all right, you want sin? Have sin. You want to live that way? Live that way. And that's exactly what we find here. Uh, You know, in this same very book, God said about Israel that their wound was incurable. You know what God was saying? I have strived with you. I have worked with you. I I, I I have dealt with you. But you do not want to hear it. So He says, fine, I'll step away. And I'll let you live with the consequences. We find the divine voice silence. But look down at verse number 11. This is interesting. You still with me this morning? Some of y'all got church to catch up on. Don't look at your watch. 
Verse 11 says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. You know what God's saying? He's saying, if all you had was a preacher that told you to get drunk and party and revel, that's the preacher you'd want. So what do we find here? We find the divine voice silence. You say don't prophesy? Fine, they won't prophesy. But he said, you know what's going to happen in the absence of faithful prophets? False prophets are going to step up. And when they do, you'll be laid prey to them. You know the greatest antidote to mistruth is truth. I I don't spend a lot of time, and I'm not saying I do it the right way, but but I don't spend a lot of time as a preacher getting up and and talking about every little heresy that that exists in the world. Not because I don't think we need to be intelligent about that and informed about that. Listen, you need to know why the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. You need to know why the Mormons are wrong. But you know what I've found? If if, If you want, listen carefully, if you want to keep sheep safe, you know what you do? You don't go out and take them on a big long journey and kill every wolf that walks up to you. You put them in a sheepfold. You put a barrier around them where those sheep cannot get in. You know what that barrier is? That barrier is biblical truth. <laughs> you know what the greatest antidote is to false prophets? It's the truth of the Word of God. You know what the greatest antidote is to heresy? Truth. That's the greatest. Learn the real thing. Learn the right thing. Hey, listen, those guys that study those counterfeit bills, they don't study them by studying the counterfeits. No, listen, for the bill, they study the real thing. If you know the real thing, you'll know a counterfeit when you see it. You know what happens? We live in sin. We don't want to hear the truth of the Word of God. Sooner or later, God will tell that preacher to be quiet. And God will let that false preacher stand up and deceive us. If we pursue deceit, eventually God will give us over to it. And that's what happened to their life. Now, I'm thankful to say it don't have to end there. I'll give it to you real quick, all right? Because, uh, the, the, you know, do they close the Shoney's now, Brother Tim? I don't know if they do. They close the Walmart now. Uh, but I don't know... I don't know where I'm going to do my shopping at 2 a.m. anymore, Brother Fred, but but I want to get you out of here before the Shoney's gets busy and all that breakfast gets gone. Listen to what verse 7 says. The Lord, in pleading with His people, says, O thou that art named the house of Jacob. Boy, that's interesting. He calls them by their name. He says, you know, like Jacob, that supplanter, that I changed his name to Israel, and I, I took him out of his disbelief and unbelief and changed his life. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? That word means restricted. means hemmed in, means bound. Is the Spirit of the Lord bound up or hindered or impeded? And then he says, are these His doings? Then he asks this question, do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Now, remember what our text verse is down there in verse 10. God says, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Why? Because it is polluted. That's God's description of a wasted life. He says, It shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. That's the destruction of a wasted life. But remember how he starts that verse. He starts by saying, Arise ye and depart. This is not your rest. He says, This life you are living, this is not what I have for you. Get up from it. Walk away from it. Leave out from it. And can I just call it this, the desertion of a wasted life. We don't always have to live that way. Thank God we can get our life right. We can walk away from it. We can abandon it. And that's what we find God commanding His people to do. You know the first step in it? It's what we read in verse 7. There has to be a recognition and repentance of sin. God is essentially saying this in verse 7. I didn't cause this mess, so who did cause this mess? He's saying, my spirit is not bound. It's not that you couldn't have heard the truth. He, he, he says, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not powerless. These are not my doings. He said, you know and I know 
that if a man walks uprightly, my words do good to them. You know what I've heard people say before? Well, that, that hard preaching, that just drives people away. You know that's not true. I found this. Hard preaching does not drive people away, but it does put a dividing line down. It brings us to a place of decision. It ain't the hard preaching that ain't nobody ever got out of church over hard preaching. Are you listening? Ain't nobody ever got out of church over hard preaching. Now, there's been people that didn't want to give up their sin that got out of church over sin. But if we're walking up rightly, if we're in line with God's Word, then hard preaching, if it's been, I ain't talking about preaching on wire rim glasses and color shirts and a bunch of nonsense. I'm talking about hard preaching of the truth of the Word of God. That does not drive people out of church. It's the sin they don't want to let go of that drives them out of church. At the end of the day, hard preaching, if we walk uprightly, it encourages us, it edifies us, it draws us closer to Him. You know what God's saying? God's saying, the blame don't lie at my feet. So then what is their proper response is to say, well, Lord, that's because the blame lies at my feet. You know the first step to getting your life or my life straightened out? You know the first step to entering into that rest is admitting where we were wrong. A man's never got right without admitting he was wrong. If you don't believe that, you ain't married. A man's never got right without admitting he's wrong. And that's a spiritual truth. I see there has to be a recognition of repentance of sin. Look down at verse 12. Man, I love this. I love, you got three or four more hours? Look at verse 12. He says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. Basra was a place known for its sheep. As the flock in the midst of their fold. Now, where does a flock belong? A flock belongs in the fold as a flock where it belongs in the fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now, if you want to know uh, what he is explicitly talking about, he's looking forward to when God's going to gather the nation back into the land at the end of the tribulation period to set up the millennial kingdom. That's what he's talking about. But you know what it reminds me of? Listen, if I'm going to get right, I've got to admit where I've done wrong. But then I've got to do what God was going to do for Israel. He was going to take sheep which belong in a flock that belongs in a fold and He was going to get them back where they belong. Can I say, if we're going to get our life right, first we have to recognize and repent of our sin. But number two, we have to get back where we belong. Talking about spiritually. We have to get back where we... And so in other words, we have to acknowledge what we did wrong, but then we have to embrace what is right. We have to walk away from the sin, but we have to walk towards the fellowship with God. We have to get back where we need... It's not enough just... Hey, listen, repentance without a relationship with God, is nothing but self-reformation and it is doomed to failure. It's not enough just to say, I'm done with the old life. We've got to embrace the new life. It's not enough just to say, I, I, I'm going to give up this sin. That's my penance. That's what the Catholics believe, right? That's my penance. I'm going to give up this sin. I, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to quit doing that. And that will prove to God that I'm... That's not Bible. Hey, listen, it's not just repentance. It's also the relationship with God. It's not just walking away from that old sin but it's walking to the Savior. We've got to, we've got to return. It's not just a repentance of sin, but we, we find the return of the sheep. And then notice verse 13. I like this. This is really the only reason I preach this message. Look at verse 13. There's a phrase here. He says, The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. I like that, Brother Ken. You know why? Because that's talking about two different things. One, it's talking about how God would lead His people out 
of captivity for the land of Judah, the Babylonians. But then looking forward to the future, it's talking about God. He's going to march spiritually at the head of the Jewish people. I'm not saying physically. I'm not saying visibly. But it will be. They'll march from, from all these Gentile nations. They'll march back to the land of Israel. And it'll be like they're marching in an army. It'll be like God's at the head of them leading them. That'll be how uniform their desire will be to come back to the land. God's saying, I have scattered them. I will draw them back and I'll march at the head of them. Do you know what I really like? I really like that word, the breaker. You know why? That's an unusual title for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the Lord, Jehovah, would be at the head of them. But you know what he also says? Their king shall pass before them. Now, if Jehovah is at the head of them and the king is talking about someone different, you know, you know who I think it's talking about? I think Jehovah is talking about the Father. But I think the king is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described as the breaker, like the prow of a ship that busts through the waves, like the front man at a military charge that breaks through the front lines, like the trailblazer that goes through uncut paths and makes a way. You know, that's what the Lord Jesus is. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the one that went ahead. He passed through the dark waters of death before man ever did. He passed through and made a way where you and I could not make a way. He's the breaker. And you know what he says? He says about the children of Israel. They'll just be following him where he goes. You know what that reminds me of spiritually? And I'll say this and be done. If we're going to get right, there has to be a repentance and recognition of our sin. There has to be a return to the sheepfold. We have to get back where we need to be. But then there has to be a recommitment to the Savior. You know what he's saying? The only way out of that polluted life is to follow Jesus when He leads you out. <laughs> I like what it says there. He's not talking about going into something. He's talking about going out of something. Did you see it? It says they have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. He's not talking about leading them into Jerusalem. He's talking about leading them out of bondage, out of sin, out of captivity. Listen, if you want to get where you need to be, you've got to follow Jesus out. I'm saying there has to be a relationship with Him. You know how we make our life count? It goes all the way back to what the Hebrews writer said. We cease from our own works. Now, wait a minute. If I'm not doing my own works, then how can I do anything, right? Let's just be honest. Let's just be practical here. I'm supposed to live my life but not live my life. How can I do that? You know, the Apostle Paul, he figured that one out. He said it this way. You've probably heard this verse before. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. So my, my, my life is dead. My works are dead. My, my ambitions are dead. Me living for me is done. I'm not doing that anymore, Paul said, because I'm a dead man. I'm crucified with Christ. He said, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, what does that translate to? Well, this is what Paul said it translates to. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the... Well, now, isn't this interesting? Faith. You remember why they couldn't enter in? Because of unbelief. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's to cease from our own way of living, our own ambition, our own self-interest, and to instead say, Lord, I want only and wholly Your will for my life. I, I'm going to trust You, Brother Ken, with my life. I'm going to trust You, Lord, with my... I'm going to let You lead the way. I'm going to let You guide. I'm going to let You direct. I'm just going to be back here following the King as He leads me out of this place of bondage. And He'll take me where I need to be. He'll bring me back to the sheepfold. Hey, that's what He did in the book of Luke, didn't He? When that sheep went astray, He went and grabbed it and hoisted it up over His shoulders and carried it right back to the sheepfold. How are you and I going to get our life out of the mess we've made it? And how are you and I going to get our life back right? We're going to have to let the king, let the shepherd carry us out and let him take us where we need to be. We've got to admit that we're wrong. 
We've got to repent of our sin and our self-reliance and our selfishness and our wickedness. We've got to then commit that we're going to do the right thing. We're going to be where we need to be. We're going to get, we're going to get in, uh, we're going to get to the house of God. We're going to get under the preaching of the Word of God. We're going to get in the prayer closet. We're going to get in our Bible. We're going to get in a soul-winning state of mind. We're going to get our life where it needs to be. And then we're going to nourish that by our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let our King lead us. And He'll lead us right. Let's bow together this morning. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, and musicians will come and play. I wonder this morning if maybe something in this preaching spoke to your situation. Could it be there's some area of your life that is not what God wants it to be, not what God intended it to be? Could it be there's some area of your life where you've lost ground, where you've diminished, where you've backed away, where you've ceded ground, let the devil have his way, let the world have its way, let the flesh have its way? Could there be there's some area of your life where you have not entered into His rest? If that's true for you, won't you commit today to get that thing settled? And I believe the Lord will meet you at this altar. I believe He'll help you with that. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.